As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Most people look at real estate and they say, well, that's for rich people. Only rich people could buy real estate. Only really wealthy people have an opportunity to do that. And we say that's not true. Before we get into today's episode, are you a fix and flipper who needs some money? You need to maybe do more deals and you're limited by the funds you have available. Well then, Fund That Flip, today's best ever sponsor, has a solution for you. And you know Fund That Flip, right? You're a loyal best ever listener. The founder, Matt Rodak, he's been on the show multiple times and they have been a previous sponsor and they love working with the best ever listeners and they provide short-term fix and flip loans to experienced investors. They've got an online platform, makes the entire process super easy, and you can get funded in as few as seven days. So if you're looking for a reliable funding partner, go to fundthatflip.com and mention that, well, you heard about it on the Best Ever Show. Best Ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff. And with us today, the founder of Bigger Pockets. How you doing, Josh Dorkin? What's going on, man? You're a crazy man. I don't know how you do it every day. I am a crazy man. That is for sure. And that is really interesting because... I have video proof of you being a crazy man. I was on your Twitter handle. I was looking at different tweets you've made. And I have a question for you. Are you ready for this? <laughs> um, you're scaring me now. <laughs> you tweeted it, baby. All right, what, what's up? What tastes better, a grasshopper, a mealworm, or a cricket? Oh, you know, I stuffed them all in my mouth at once. So <laughs> I couldn't tell you. So what he's talking about, I went to the Butterfly Museum here in Denver. It's between Denver and Boulder. And they basically have this thing like, hey, try out insects. You know, it's the super high in protein content. And it's kind of the, what is it? The carbon impact of eating these insects is far lower than if you're eating comparable mammals, right? And so I'm with my kids. I got to be brave. I got to show them that I can do this super dad, right? And they have these three things that you could eat. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'll do it. The problem is this. They went and they seasoned all of these things. So it was like they put some powder on each of them, each with its own flavoring. All of the flavors of the powder were horrible. 
So if you were just eating these insects, it would have just been crunchy and fine, but like the powder was disgusting. Now, have you isolated that where you do know the powder was actually the part that was horrible and not the actual insect itself? The insect was fine. Yeah, I had no problem eating the insect. It was the powder was just kind of gross. June 17th, 2017, Josh's Twitter handle. Go look at that and you shall see the video. It's very impressive. You don't flinch. You just eat it. And you're like, mm, okay, next. What else you got? Got this. Got this. <laughs> well, what we're doing today is we're going to learn more about you and perhaps some things that some best ever listeners who I'd say 99.9% .9 are all members of Bigger Pockets and that point. 0.1% shame on you. Go join. We're going to learn more about you and Bigger Pockets and your road to where you're at now and where Bigger Pockets is. Best ever listeners, slightly different format for this interview. We're going to do more of a long form and we're going to separate it out into two episodes. So this will be part one. And here's what I'd like to start with. Prior to our conversation, I asked some best ever listeners what questions they would have for you. And I think you're going to enjoy how we start out because based on my conversations with you in person and just what I've read about you and interacted with you on Bigger Pockets, you take pride in helping Bigger Pockets members and how it's a community and we're all in this together. So here's the question. This is from Kendra B. And she asks, is there one person that sticks out in your memory as having been helped by bigger pockets and all the work that you all have done? The one person that sticks out, the instant answer to that is Brandon Turner. Those of you who are unfamiliar, Brandon Turner is co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. He works for us. And initially, when I came to know Brandon years and years ago, he was a user on our platform. He was trying to find financial freedom or whatever it is that he was trying to find and use BiggerPockets platform to get there. And he was, I think, the pure representation of who we were and what we strive for. You know, he was this guy living in the Pacific Northwest who had been kind of floundering around in his life. I think that might be an unfair <laughs> characterization of Brandon, but regardless, you know Brandon. So he was trying to figure it out like the rest mm -hmm. of us. And, yep. and he came across BiggerPockets and the idea of real estate. And use bigger pockets to help him build this passive portfolio of real estate. And of course, living in the area that he lived in, he was at a point where he no longer needed a job. He had created that freedom for himself. He was writing for bigger pockets. And at that time, I was in need of help. I needed to hire somebody to come and join me as my first employee. And we got to know each other and, and I brought him on. But yeah, Brandon is probably... I think Brandon really just is that pure representation of who we are. But um, man, there's countless stories. I mean, not a day goes by where we don't hear from somebody who's like, you guys are transforming my life. You guys are helping me out. You guys have helped me quit my job or helped me retire or helped me build income for my family or whatever it is. And that's why we do it. We're here to help people succeed. Mm -hmm. How many members are on the site now? Like 725,000? I think it's like 830. 830. It depends on, yeah, it depends on what day, right? Like every day it gets more and more. 830,000 members. I'm sure that with the positive feedback, you get some gripes. And how do you determine what to listen to and what to filter out that's just 
how things are when you get to a certain point and you reach a critical number of people, you're just going to get gripes. People gripes when I have like three people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> people always want to complain about something. You know, that's really a good question. I would say staying true to yourself, knowing who you are, knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it and making sure everyone on your team is aware of that. And from time to time, situations will arise where somebody has a gripe and you're like, oh, well, you know, we never actually thought about this. Let's think about it. Is this something we want to be reactive to or is this something we want to deal with? Do we want to change how we do certain things, change policies, whatever it is? Or is this a one-off situation? It's hard, man. I mean, I think the same goes with anything in business, whether it's somebody flipping a house or or buying rental property or running a laundromat. There's always gripes that come at you. And and I think the way to best deal with it is really know who you are, really have your values kind of spun out and make sure that you're staying true to yourself and what you stand for and and ultimately your customers, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. no matter what, we cannot please everybody. Impossible. Whether it's me or Amazon or Tesla or any other brand, Apple, right? I mean, the big guys, I'm not amongst those big guys. There's no way you're going to please everybody. So I think coming to acceptance on that and understanding that you can't, but striving to have a customer forward looking business like Zappos, Tony Shea, they they don't think of themselves as a shoe business. They think of themselves as a customer service business. And Mm -hmm. I think we're not as outwardly stating of that, but I do believe that is core to who we are is we're here to help people be successful. We want to take care of people. We want to do right by people. And that's who we are. How do you communicate that amongst the team so that is present with them on a daily basis as they're interacting with bigger pockets members and building bigger pockets i don't need to because everybody who communicates with our users knows that if they don't and somebody interacts with somebody (laughs) in a way that doesn't feel right let us know but ultimately that's part of kind of our training that's part of how we do things is making sure that those folks that interact and communicate, they know it. We're here for you guys. We're here for our listeners and our users. And our job is to do our best to play a unbiased intermediary and a platform where people could come together, where people can share information and where folks can help each other. At the end of the day, I see us as this democratization platform. Yep. That's a hard word to that's say. That's a tough one. Yeah. Never get it right. But that's kind of who we are. So I think that probably yeah. has. And has there been a gripe that you can think of that has changed a policy or you all have changed maybe a product or a feature on the site as a result of it? Man, we get gripes every day. And then our team takes them, looks at them, evaluates them, decides if something needs to be altered, tweaked, and modified, and they do it. I don't even know about all the mm-hmm. tweaks and changes that happen. We empower the folks within the team to be able to do that. And anytime we do anything, we piss people off. Remember when Facebook did that last redesign? No, we all forget it. But like when it happened, everyone was like, ah, screw Facebook. I'm done. I'm never going to go back again, right? This is mm-hmm. it. We all went back. You're used to something, right? You get used to how things are done. And when something changes, it's off-putting until you either decide that you like it or you really don't like it. And at that point, we can then look at it and say, oh, well, is this something that is affecting more than just one person? And we test stuff and we create test groups and we don't ever just say, oh, hey, we're going to make a change because this is what we think and we put it out there. We talk to users. We have 
years and years and years of collective wisdom, plus we talk to our users on a daily basis, then anytime we make radical changes, we always bring folks in and kind of work through to make sure that we're doing it in the best way possible. But is there any one thing? Let's see. We came up with a product that I thought was going to be amazing, unbelievable, which was we had created a live chat so users can chat with each other, kind of like a Facebook chat or something like that. So if you're logged in, you go to XYZ's profile, it'll tell you if they're online and then you can just start chatting with them. And we launched it. I was pumped. This was what, two years ago? And it was an abject failure, like a complete and utter failure. People didn't like it, didn't use it. It might've been execution. It could have been one of a hundred different things, but total failure. And after a couple months, ultimately killed it. But that was something that we were able to measure, right? We're not just going to say, oh, there's one person griping. It's nobody is actually using this. <laughs> the people that are using it are using it incorrectly. It is a failed product. All right, we'll try again with something else. And what is your best guess for if you had to pick why that didn't work? I think because it was another platform. People already had their platforms of choice for chat. I think whether it was Skype or AIM or Facebook and just creating another one, I think it creates confusion, right? It's just another thing you got to do, another place you got to go. Look, I still stand by the product. I think it was a good decision to make that product. I think there's a ton of value in it. I used it when it was around. I found it very, very helpful, not just as Josh CEO, but as like user to user. I thought it was fantastic, but you live, you learn. Yep. As Josh CEO, what are your main responsibilities that you focus on now? Me? Today, my main responsibilities are ensuring that my team leads all are on the same page, ensuring that we know where we're going, we know what we're working on, making sure that the people side of things is working really well, staying on top of our culture, making sure that people feel good, people feel valued, people have clarity in who we are and what we're doing. I am definitively still the chief advocate of bigger pockets, the face, the brains, the beauty. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm the guy that I talk to other companies. I'm not the only one, but I'm out there advocating on our behalf. I'm the one out there trying to create relationships. I look at all the options too, right? I mean, as the owner of a company, you need to know other businesses in your industry. You need to think about things like, hey, do we raise money? Do we not raise money? If we're going to have an exit, how do we do that? How does all that work? Because as the owner and CEO, I'm both. There's actually two roles there, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they conflict, but I have the responsibility of knowing and understanding all these different things and factors that are kind of out there. And sometimes I have to fight myself on, hey, what's best for the company? Is it the same as what's best for Josh, owner of the company? How does that work out? Thinking all that stuff through, it's complicated. But yeah, I think that's probably the gist of what I do. And then I love getting my hands dirty on product. I love kind of working with our design guys and guiding my vision through them. I like working with our marketing people. You mentioned the question of, do we raise money? Do we not raise money? Have you raised money for bigger pockets? Never. And why is that? 
When I started the company, it was a hobby site. I was just doing it for fun. And well, I don't know how much fun I was having, but it was a hobby site still. Eventually became this lifestyle business. And in the first number of years, I did think a lot about raising, not raising. It was the cool thing to do. Hey, I got a tech company. I should raise money. And then I have this valuation and now I'm worth all this money, you know, all that stuff that the tech press and everybody else kind of perpetrates. And I've definitively perseverated, but at the end of the day, I've always decided not to raise because I never wanted to have somebody over my shoulder telling me, hey, this is how this company needs to be run. Hey, Josh, you better get an ROI in the next three years or you're going to be out of job and we're going to shut your company down. Like for me, that would be a travesty. This company is too important, not just to me, but to so many people that I can't possibly have somebody who doesn't get it directing what we do and how we do it in order to just eke out some kind of return. So that's been it. But look, I mean, there's use in raising money. There's value in raising money based on strategic objectives. Do we want to go and acquire a company? It might be helpful. Hey, do we need to drastically improve our headcount in order to create or modify some kind of product? That might be a reasonable use, but there's other ways to do it too, right? There's loans and things like that. But Right now we're good and I'm not necessarily looking though, you know, if somebody comes in and says, hey, I'm going to give you some FU money to buy a piece of your company, I might have to have a conversation with them for sure. But I'm not necessarily seeking out a capital raise right now for any particular product or objective. You mentioned some of the aspects of your responsibilities that you focus on that you really love, like the product, working with the marketing people, et cetera. What's the least favorite part of what you're responsible for? Talking to you. I mean, <laughs> uh, this show is great. Um, uh, look, we've got 20 something people in our office. Once you start getting more than a handful of people, personalities come in and people drama kind of yep. happen. It's inevitable no matter how good yep you are at hiring no matter how hard you try. No matter how many ping pong tables you have. Yeah, we got two. I know. But that really is the one thing that drives me nuts. I'm kind of the old school, like, can't we all get along? I may not think you're a particularly good person, but I work with you. Well, <laughs> frankly, that shouldn't be the case. That, that's, not, that's not your opening line when you resolve, attempt right. to resolve an issue. Is Correct. It? Correct. <laughs> No, oh, that's not me. You're not, a particular, you're not a particularly good person, but no, hey, I'll work with you on this. That Let's is resolve. me acting as somebody who may have a squabble with somebody else. <laughs> that is not me as me. Look, I'm from New York. When I don't like somebody, I tell them like, hey man, this isn't working. I don't like you. I don't have that at the company and I don't see that at the company because I would hang out with everybody at the company if I weren't their boss. Everybody here I like and they're all good people. But look, again, that's irrelevant. You may have different mindsets, different mentality, and you may not get along super well with somebody, but be a pro. Work through it and figure it out. And most of the time that happens here, 99% of the time that happens here. But when the drama comes up, it just obviously, which is inevitable, it, I hate dealing with it. Your first hire, Brandon, did well there, clearly. How do you help set your team up for success on subsequent hires? It's a good question again. Wow, look at you. I would say having a very clear idea of the kind of culture we're trying to create, having a very clear idea on job objectives and roles and responsibilities, 
and making sure that we have team buy-in. So one of the things that we do is we have, call it a quote, family interview, where a potential hire, you're going to go through all the regular rigmarole, make sure that they're skilled and capable and they can do the job. But are they somebody that the team as a whole can get along with? Are they somebody that share kind of the mindset that the family does? So if you're an engineer, you're going to be sitting down with customer service person, folks from all different areas of the company who may not directly even work with you. But the idea is that by doing that, we can get clear objectives. We can get clarity on who this person is. And frankly, we also have a no a-hole rule. So it also really helps to vet out the a-holes that may be coming through because four of us may not see it, but the fifth person may be like, you didn't see that? That that lady was a total a-hole. Or that guy was a total a-hole. Can you clarify that? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. Okay. You're right. Woo, good catch. Mm -hmm. Is there any direction given to the family interview for the people who are doing the interviewing? Oh, yeah. There's, I mean, our HR, make sure that they're asking legal questions and and doing it all in the way that they're able to. So yes. Got it. Fair enough. We're not asking. So how many kids do you have? I I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't implying that it was more along the lines of, Hey Joe, are you Christian? Because we don't (laughs) hire Christians here. If there was a particular, I guess, format, or if it was just a round table and then it's just, okay, here's all these people and they just start asking you questions. I think it's fairly loose. Fair enough. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's kind of talk about what we were touching on earlier, and that is in bigger pockets as the business. What are your top three revenue streams? Sure. So our top streams are advertising, memberships, and our publishing business. Okay. And what do you see the most potential for in the future of those three? Actually, the most potential is not one that has been named. I think providing, connecting our users with service providers through lead gen is definitively one of the biggest opportunities for us. There's so many people that are looking for X on the platform. And X is usually like, hey, I need a great agent. I need a great lender. I need a property manager. I need all these things. And I think servicing that is going to create a monster opportunity for us from a financial standpoint. And I think it's also going to create a massive opportunity for our users to get their needs serviced, you know, help help people find what they want, find what they're looking for and, and solving that. So that's, I think one of the big opportunities, biggest opportunities for us going forward. The ad business, look, as the site grows, as all of our different media grow, you have, the opportunity to grow that. But over time, when I started the company almost 13 years ago, our revenue per thousand eyeballs was five, six, seven times what it is today. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's kind of where things have gone in online advertising, which is great. No problem. You know, which is why we also have created other means for driving revenue. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we would have been out of business a long time ago. In terms of your focus as a CEO in bigger pockets, what's something that keeps you up at night? Either it excites you or it is a concern of yours. 
what keeps me up at night? I would say the things that I really ponder are how do we touch more people? How do we tell folks who don't already know about us or not even us? How do we help tens of millions of people out there that don't even realize that they have an opportunity to go forth and build wealth through something other than their nine to five? Because we do a really crappy job in this country in teaching people financial wellness. We don't teach them financial wellness. You don't learn that stuff in school. Maybe few and far between you do, but we don't teach that. And so the average person might learn about banking. Maybe they'll learn about a savings account. Some of them don't trust it and put their money under their pillow anyway. Folks who have jobs that give them 401ks may know that they have a 401k and know that their company contributes to it and that they should put their money in the market, but they may not know what that really means. They may not understand, okay, what does buying a stock actually mean? What does buying a mutual fund actually mean? What is an ETF? And then all the way down to real estate. Most people look at real estate and they say, well, that's for rich people. Only rich people could buy real estate. Only really wealthy people have an opportunity to do that. And we say that's not true. We say, well, how do we solve this? Because I think it's a real problem in our society. I just talked to so many people who are like, I don't have a chance. I don't have an opportunity. I can't get out of whatever it is that I'm in. My life, my lifestyle, my place in society, I'm stuck. And unfortunately, the second you have that mindset, you're stuck. You're done. Mm -hmm. You're not getting out. So how do we change it? How do we alter that? And how can I, through bigger pockets, touch as many people as possible and pass the message that it may not be real estate. Look, if we can use our voice in some way, shape, or form to help somebody who thinks they're stuck get unstuck and they never go into real estate, then we succeeded. If it's, I'm unhappy with my job and bigger pockets help me realize I'm unhappy with my job. So I'm going to go find another one that just best suits who I am and what my truth is. Then I just did my job and we're solving a need. So that's the stuff that I'm always just trying to crunch through is how do we do that? How do we impact it? And again, I think that problem is a lot bigger than bigger pockets. I think we're here to help solve it, but we can't solve it alone. I think there's societal things that we need to do. Our schools need to make change. As much as I'd hate to say our government needs to get involved, but I think they should play a role. I think teaching financial wellness and teaching people to not rely on the system only creates a more productive society. Mm -hmm. It kind of ties into what you were talking about just a second ago, the connecting users to service providers via lead generation, perhaps maybe not a service provider, but just connecting people from they have a challenge to here's your solution. Yeah, I think that's fair. The big issue I always have is there's never one solution. And I think one of the reasons Bigger Pockets is successful is because we were never so bold as to say that we know there's one answer for everybody. This is what's right for everybody. A very anti-guru mentality that we have. Instead, it's hey, you, Joe, come on Bigger Pockets and you have a question or an issue or concern and you get 10 people, 15 people, 20 people with 10, 15, 20 different ideas on what works. And then you have an opportunity to go through and say, oh, you know, 
what works best for me? Mm-hmm. I think that's why organizations like EO, which I'm not a part of, but I contemplate joining all the time, or YPO are so successful. They're organizations where people aren't telling you what to do. Well, people do tell you what to do on bigger pockets. You just don't have to listen to them. <laughs> but it's, hey, I'm going to share my story. And through my story, you can kind of extract an answer or maybe after hearing two or three stories, you can extract what's true for you. I think the beauty of bigger pockets is you get altering opinions and those opinions are there to kind of guide you. Whether it's something you read on a post on bigger pockets or whether it's just something you've come across as an entrepreneur, what's the worst advice that you've seen or have been given personally? The worst advice Trust me. (laughs) I think the most dangerous or worst thing that I see is typically, I really don't see it. I don't think I see this. I just know that people do it. Mm -hmm. People not taking responsibility for doing their own homework, doing their own due diligence. That could be in anything, whether it's, hey, I'm going to go buy a property from a turnkey company and I'm going to trust their numbers, or I'm going to buy a rental property from an agent and... I'm going to trust the numbers from the seller or, hey, I'm going to partner with somebody, but I'm not going to do background checks and I'm not going to make sure that they are who they say they are. I think that's the one thing that I see over and over again, which it blows my mind, even on bigger pockets. I mean, there's people on bigger pockets here on the site that have been around for years and years and thousands and maybe tens of thousands of posts Mm -hmm. and they're wicked smart and I want to trust the hell out of them. But if I were going to get into bed with them, if I were going to partner with them, I'm going to go through every ounce of due diligence check that I would with anybody else that I didn't know at all. And I think that's the one thing that that people do that drives me nuts. Do your homework, do your due diligence. And look, at the end of the day, there's shitty people out there. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on your show, but there's, bleep me, there's, there's people out there that take advantage of people in society, in the world. And unfortunately, everywhere else. And so it is incumbent upon us to make sure we are protecting ourselves and our families and our nest eggs by being careful. Mm -hmm. So I think that's not necessarily something that I see, but something that I know happens all the time on or off the site. And I think it's just so important that people do their homework. On the due diligence note and doing your homework, A question that Dave M. asked is, what are the likes and dislikes for owning a business versus owning real estate? And which one do you enjoy most? I think the dislikes are the same on both. The dislikes are the people. Not that I dislike my people, but I dislike people drama. I'm a relatively low drama kind of guy. So people drama, I, I just don't like it. Likes, I would say they're very similar, right? I mean, you're kind of embarking on some endeavor to reach some kind of goal. And real estate, it's, hey, I want to buy some property with the means to build wealth in some way, shape, or form. In business, it's the same. At least for me, I always have the, how do I do better? How can I do a better job than I did before? How can I not make this mistake again? How can I improve my processes? How can I serve more people in a better way? If it's rental property, how do I treat my tenants better? Whatever it is. So I don't know. For me, the likes are in the challenge of doing better. The dislikes are in the challenge of 
people who mm-hmm. are difficult or could be <laughs> difficult from time to time. I have identified your own personal version of hell. Are you ready for it? Uh, I, yeah, no, you're going to give me an anxiety <laughs> attack. It is if you were trapped in a room with a big screen TV playing Jerry Springer on loop. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. <laughs> People are griping and griping and griping. Yeah, right, yeah. It would pretty much be my version of hell, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, you and Brandon interview a bunch of people and high-achieving real estate entrepreneurs as well as people who are just getting started. So you benefit from getting a front seat and hearing about how people are achieving certain things and what works, what doesn't work. Where do you see the future of real estate investing industry going or just real estate in general going? Is there anything that you see in the future that is coming to light? You know, there's so many new companies trying new stuff. Man, I think it'd be nice for some of the process to be simplified. Let me think about this for a second here. So at the end of the day, there's two groups of people, right? There's homeowners and then there's investors. And I think you have to group them separately because their mindset is typically very different. New investors, I think, are going to think like a homeowner. Experienced investors are going to think like a business owner. From the homeowner perspective, look, you're going to buy a house. You're going to want to walk that house. You're going to want to walk through it. You're going to want to feel it. You're going to want to experience it and get a vibe for it. There's all these prognostications and development of technology for, hey, let me put on some VR goggles and walk around a property. I don't know. I've never worn VR goggles, so I cannot even imagine how that would be. Well, I can't imagine, but I just don't know what it's like. But I can't imagine it giving you the same experience as walking through the property that you're going to buy. You know, there's a smell, right? There's a vibe. There's a smell. There's an energy. There's a feeling Mm -hmm. inside and outside that you'll never in a million years get from VR, right? I think people buying houses, no matter what, are going to have to always go, at least the vast majority, that's the vibe that they want. They want to feel it. So I don't know that there's any way to bypass that. Now, for that group... Hey, can we make financing easier? Can we make the paperwork easier? Hey, can we make the process easier? That's a definite yes. Why do I have to sign 8,000 sheets of paper? You know, blah, blah, blah. There's ways that can all go. From the investor perspective, I think just facilitating information flow. And I think the same goes for regular homeowners as well. There's still just so much bad information out there. We rely on a seller's agent to provide accurate information, which they may not be privy to, or they may not necessarily want to have full disclosure of, right? How can we centralize this stuff? I know very little about blockchain, but I think blockchain can be a very, very good technology for real estate information because once that accurate data is in the chain, if somebody messes with it, everybody knows, right? So finding a way to ensure that accuracy and truthfulness is passed along. Look, I bought a house a couple of years ago, my primary, and there had been water damage in the living room and they had repaired that water damage. It was not disclosed at the sale and the cause of the water damage was actually never fixed, right? <laughs> so there was water damage on the floor. The floor was fixed. The cause was not repaired. <laughs> I bought it. I didn't notice it. And two, three months later, my floor started warping and coming apart. Clearly the homeowner knew 
there's a high likelihood that the agent knew, but at the end of the day, nobody disclosed it. So I end up with all this damage. It's a lot of money. This is on the order of probably 10K plus. And that never in a million years should have happened. The second that person went and fixed the floor, that should have been disclosed or added to some kind of thing like a Carfax, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, something that would pass along. So I know what the deal is. Hey, these homeowners did X, Y, and Z. These homeowners did all these modifications and changes and it's part of the permanent record. So I think stuff like that would be really, really valuable and really, really helpful. At the end of the day, there's always going to be a demand for real estate. There's always going to be a demand and a need for people to own property. Hey, crowdfunding came along and suddenly like crowdfunding is going to dominate and take over everything in real estate. Eh, It's another way to raise money. It's another way to finance a property. It's another way for people with money to get a return. But people are still buying and selling and getting loans. The basics are always going to be the same. I can't imagine basics ever changing. I just think we'll come up with creative ways for making different parts of the process easier and better and more accurate. I agree. I think that um, when you talk to institutional guys and gals who have a more macro level than I do and who look at it from a much more institutionalized reference point, real estate investing, they say that real estate investing is broken. It's a fractured industry, and there's not a lot that connects the dots among all the properties, unlike other industries that they invest in. And I think that what you're talking about, the Carfax for properties that is some sort of national or statewide database is needed and would certainly be helpful. I do see that coming. Uh, It's just inevitable with the amount of technology and smart people that are in the world. So yes, I do agree. So Josh asks, what are the three to five most important things in your experience to growing and scaling a company? The most important things to growing and scaling a company. One, having a good idea that's scalable. (laughs) Start there. Two, So having an idea, having some kind of plan, whether or not it's written, I don't think you need a necessarily a written plan from zero. I didn't. So two, an idea, uh, one, an idea to a plan. Three, your business has to solve some kind of need for the customer that somebody else is not serving. I say that out loud and I hear, I think about like McDonald's versus Burger King. Burger King is solving a need. McDonald's is solving the same need, but now it's flavor choices, right? Like, Mm -hmm. do you like A or B better? But having a USP, a unique selling proposition, something that is unique or that you believe to be unique about what it is that you're doing, you're building, you're offering service, product, you name it. Three, being passionate or having a team of people that are absolutely passionate about that idea. It's pretty rare to see successful companies where companies get to a point of success where the founders or creators or people running the show did not have some kind of passion for it. It's too hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, too, it's too much work. It's too difficult to struggle through that without having that passion. Having a dedication to people and to your own people. So you can't build a scaling company without taking care of people. And I'm saying that, and then I could think of examples of companies where they have a really crappy culture and I'm like, oh, maybe not. But at the end of the day, I think what comes around, uh, Mm -hmm. goes around. 
I think those are the keys. And especially in 2017, when we're recording this, I think something that we didn't do in the past, and by we, I mean businesses in general, um, becoming very data-oriented, metrics and data, and understanding your business from a data perspective. I think you often see small businesses where they don't get it struggling a lot, knowing your numbers. Let's take real estate investors. If you're a real estate investor and you do mailings, you market by mail. If you don't know your send and open rates and your cost per send and your funnels, then you're just throwing money out the window. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're doing. You have no way to measure whether or not what you're doing is successful or not. So pizza restaurant, right? What's our cost per ingredient? And can we drop that down and measuring our volume per day and and being able to predict most restaurants fail because they can't buy correctly, right? And Mm -hmm. they can't manage their costs and all the waste. And so all of that is knowing and understanding the numbers. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things. Hey, Josh, thank you for being on the show from talking about the overall approach that you take to business and how to build a company. I mean, the process or the things that we need to pay attention to when we build a company, have the idea, have the plan, make sure we're solving something with a unique selling proposition, be passionate, have dedication to our people, and know our business from a data standpoint. That right there is the blueprint for creating not only a real estate investing company, but just a company in general. Also, you're speaking to a Bigger Pockets member, and I am now going to start using the member notes section. So, best ever listeners, go check out the member notes section. Sounds like a really cool feature. And from a overall entrepreneurship and mindset standpoint, I noticed one thing that you honed in on and you were talking about your overall vision and it's not saying I can't do something or I don't have access. It's how do we do something and really coming at it from a abundance mentality and a solutions oriented mentality, which as a true entrepreneur would do. Then the family style interview, I mean, culture is incredibly important. It's obvious to you and how much emphasis you put in that. And don't bring no drama. So thanks for being on the show, Josh. Hope you have a best ever day. Enjoyed it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Take care. You want to get better at negotiating real estate? Well, how about, do you want to get better at negotiating real estate for free? Even better, right? Well, go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has partnered with best-selling author Jay Scott, to provide you with a free chapter from Jay's new book on negotiating real estate. I've read the book, lots of good real-world case studies sprinkled in there too. I love it when they do that. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever to download your free copy of the chapter today. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation Podcast at com.